As you're taking your seat, you go ahead and take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 37. If you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers are walking from the front here towards the back, and they've got Bibles in their hands, so you can slip your hand up in the air if you don't have a Bible. We would love to give you a Bible today uh, so that you can follow along as we, we continue to chip our way through Genesis, specifically chapter 37. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, just take this home with you. This is our gift to you today. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word. Pray that uh, God would bless you as you read it and, uh, and hear his voice through the pages of Scripture. Well, Happy New Year. Everybody off to a good start? Most of you are here, so I assume you're healthy. For those of you who are still sick, watching at home, Happy New Year. Uh, but we're grateful that you're here, and uh, I don't know about you. Uh, anybody here have New Year's resolutions? A few of you? None of you. You don't want to admit it. Here's why. You don't want to admit it because you've already failed, right? Done. It's the 7th of January. Forget about the resolutions, right? I do think that there's a lot of value to beginning the year kind of with a clean slate and thinking about our lives in a fresh way, setting goals, priorities, and just considering the kind of things we want to do and accomplish in our lives over this coming year. But I also think that when we think about those resolutions, they're often shaped very much by the world that we live in. There's a bit of an obsession in our world about living the good life. I think we hear it um, all the time in a variety of of different ways. Our world is obsessed, and perhaps our, our, our culture in particular, with achieving our best life now. We know it as the pursuit of happiness. One author writes these words, a secular author, he says this, we are all beaten over the head that we should always follow our dreams, always pursue our passions, always turn reality into what we believe will make us happy. Most marketing and advertising is based on this. The majority of the self-help industry pushes this, and with the lifestyle design and self-improvement obsession of this generation, it has become a borderline religion. Then he says this, to create and define one's own life is viewed as some sort of salvation. But I I think too that this is not a, a universal belief or reality. These ideas that we've just kind of looked at and considered here for just a moment, I think in many ways this is cultural. This is post-enlightenment Western ways of thinking, that you can achieve whatever you dream assuming that you work hard enough. Ideas like this have not always been possible or even close to a reality for the majority of people throughout human history. And the author who wrote that paragraph I read to you before, he kind of goes below the surface and he he says this, that the underlying assumption is that you deserve to follow your dreams. You owe it to yourself to pursue them at all costs, to achieve your dreams, and then they will finally make you happy once and for all, right? Once you finally finally get there, you'll have everything you've ever needed to finally feel satisfied, fulfilled, happy, complete. But even if we are fortunate enough to do all that we want in this life, 
to get all we want in this life or to become everything we wanted to in this life, people who get there, they are often struck with this reality. It is still not enough. It's a famous quote by John D. Rockefeller, who at one point in history was the richest man in the world, after he made his first million dollars, he was asked the question, how much money is enough? And his answer was so profound, he said this, just a little bit more. It's never ending. And oftentimes, people who rise to the top and get all the things they want and think they have everything they need to be happy they find out that more often than not, it leads not to happiness, listen, but to despair. In reality, there are so many things that are outside of our control to assume that we can just accomplish our dreams, fulfill our dreams, get everything we want in this life. It's really not reality. Life as we know, we well know, is often harder than we had ever imagined it would be. Live long enough, and I promise you will say those words multiple times throughout your life. Life does not always go the way we planned. Dreams don't always come true. And if they do, they don't usually come true the way we would have done it. Joseph, in Genesis chapter 37, is an incredible example of these realities. And he's used by God to give us a big reality check on what life is all about and what life is often like. His story, in many ways, is familiar to us and in some ways very, very different to ours. And we're going to look at the life of Joseph in chapter 37, but we're, we're going to trace through the life of Joseph over the next number of weeks, actually a couple of months, because his story takes us to the very end of the book of Genesis. And there's a bit of a spoiler alert here that we, we learn from uh, the life of Joseph, okay? Here it is. Spoiler alert. Don't say it didn't tell you, okay? Life is hard. Life is hard. So here's the question that I want to ask in light of this. How do we make it through this hard, hard life sometimes. I want to provide three reality checks to help us navigate the challenges of life from Genesis 37. I want us to have our expectations, the bar for life in the right place, because so often we know this, right? When we have the bar in the wrong place, that's when things become really, really hard. The first reality check I want to give you is this. Life is not about fulfilling your dreams. That's the first reality check. Let's read verses 1 through 11 together. It says this, that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, 
We were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. The beginning of this chapter displays this massive rift or fracture between Joseph and his brothers. It paints the picture once again, as we've all you know, regularly seen throughout the book of Genesis, that the, the people that God is using, the family that God is using, is a very dysfunctional family. And I want you just to, just to sit on that for a moment. The family that God is going to use to bring about his redemption for the world is incredibly dysfunctional. I don't know how dysfunctional your family is. All of our families are somewhat dysfunctional, right? We all know that. But no matter how dysfunctional your family is, I promise you it's probably not as bad as Joseph's. And here's the good news in that. God can use dysfunctional families and dysfunctional people to accomplish his good purposes. Amen? That's a good thing. Otherwise, we'd all be in big trouble. There are a total of 12 sons in the family of Joseph. We read from this text here that Joseph at this point is 17 years old. We know there's one younger brother, Benjamin, but all Joseph's brothers, for the most part, are older than him, and we're being reminded here of the the family dynamics. Why are things so dysfunctional? Well, here's why. Because the 12 brothers come from four different mothers. The center of the strife in this family is a result of the sin of the father Jacob, or Israel as he is now known. Jacob has done a good job of making one son feel incredibly loved and the other sons feel incredibly neglected. And it all began because Jacob had to fulfill his dreams. I want you to think about this for a moment. We know the story of Jacob and how he got uh, his wife, Rachel, his beloved wife. His desire, his dream, his plan was to marry this beautiful woman, Rachel, that he saw at the well. And so he goes to her father, and and Laban is his name, right? He promises, you can marry my daughter, Rachel, the woman of your dreams, so to speak, and you can have her. You just got to work for me for seven years. Well, he works seven years for his father-in-law, soon-to-be father-in-law Laban, and he wakes up the morning after his wedding to look at his new bride, only to realize he's married Rachel's sister, Leah. But he's so dead set on getting what he wants most, which is Rachel, that he agrees to work another seven years in order to get the woman that he truly wants, Rachel. And even after he has Rachel, 
She ends up being barren, unable to provide any children for him. And so both Rachel and Leah, in kind of competition with each other, they take their servants and they offer them to, to, to Jacob as wives in order for them to produce more male children so that the family can still grow and be considered powerful and blessed. The whole situation sounds like a mess, right? But what we we know is that Joseph is most loved because Joseph's mother is the most loved woman in that wild, crazy relationship, web of relationships. In verse 2, we see the kind of detention building because we got Joseph, the the, the loved son of the loved wife, and then all of a sudden, verse 2, it gets even worse. Joseph brings back a bad report about his brothers. For for some reason, um, Jacob thought it would be a good idea to take the younger son and put him in charge of the older sons. And so he goes out and he's simply doing what his father's asking him to do and he comes back with a report and the report's not good. Actually, the, the, the wording in the Hebrew indicates that it is not a bad report. It's, it's worded like this. It's an evil report or, or better still, it's a report of their evil, okay? So it's not just that they're doing bad things. Moses is setting up a massive contrast in the text for us. He wants us to see, listen, everything we read about Joseph is good. It's right. It's true. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's honest. He's a man of integrity. And right out the gates, what we see is that his brothers are being depicted as evil men. And so we get this this contrast here. And eventually, we're going to see that they're going to turn their evil on Joseph himself. It's unclear whether Joseph is maybe exaggerating their actions. Many commentators point out that while Joseph is presented as being morally good, he's kind of being depicted as a bit of a, you know, immature, bratty, younger brother. Uh, Maybe. I'm not convinced of that. Maybe. I do know this. Listen, giving a bad report about your older brothers has never been considered the popular thing to do. That's a fact. I mean, what do you call somebody who, who you know, what do you call the brother who tells on you all the time? Was it, was it snitch? <laughs> and we know what snitches get. But listen, <laughs> the tattletale, right? You little tattletale, what are you doing? But here's the question. Does that make what he's doing in this situation wrong? Again, think about it. He's simply being faithful to do what his father has asked him to do. There's no indication that, that what he's doing is actually wrong. I think what he's doing is actually right. And, and we understand this as parents. Parents, if you have kids, you understand just kind of the tension that exists here because we, we don't like when our kids tattletale on each other either. It, it, but there are exceptions, right? Like, we know if our kids are up to no good, we want one of the kids to come to us and at least give us a picture of what's really happening. And especially if, if, if some of the siblings say to the younger sibling, don't tell mom and dad, that's the indicator of what? You better tell mom and dad, especially if the actions are evil. Evil. And Joseph here is doing the unpopular thing, but he's doing the right thing 
And that's what stands out in this contrast. So before we get very far, we see this contrast between the brothers and Joseph, and this theme is gonna be traced to the entirety of the rest of this book. They are evil, and here's what we see. They're following their own sinful desires and dreams. Joseph, on the other hand, is faithful, doing what his father has asked. But it gets worse. Verse three indicates that, again, Joseph is the, the son that is loved by Israel, by Jacob. And, and to signify that, he gives him this special code. We know it as a code of many colors. It might as well have been emblazoned with the words, dad loves me most. Favorite child that doesn't make you popular in the home. And in fact, The brothers hate him because of this. And and they hate him not just because he's loved most, it's because of what this coat actually signifies. G.K. Beale, a scholar, says this. He said that clothing in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament indicated an inheritance and also a change in status for the person or object being clothed. So think of a priest in the Old Testament. They were given priestly garments that indicated their status and their position, their role amongst the people of God. More kind of important for this text, this was common amongst kings in the ancient world They were clothed in an installment ceremony as a sign of the new status of the royal authority. So here's what we need to see here in this passage. is as if Jacob is treating Joseph like a prince. And he, not the brothers, the older brothers, will receive the inheritance. And they hate him for it. It conflicts with what they want. The dreams of the father are at odds with the dreams of the sons. And then to make matters worse, the son dreams. And his dreams create tension, more tension in the family. And you'll notice there are two dreams. One involves sheath bowing down to other sheaths and stars bowing down to other stars, moon and stars. I want to be clear as we we look at Joseph's dreams, the two dreams are not his own dreams for his life. This is how you can differentiate him from his brothers. But rather, they are dreams given by God that reveal God's plan for Joseph's life. And at this point in the story, though, nobody understands that. They just see a little brother, the favorite brother, having these wild dreams where he appears to be the most important person and everybody else comes and bows down to him. And the dreams, they they have such an obvious point. Everybody picks up on, on what Joseph is saying and what the dreams are seeming to indicate that Joseph will be elevated to a position of status, some kind of regal authority. And everybody will bow before him. And the mistake that he makes from a human standpoint is not in having these dreams, but in telling these dreams. They hate him for the dreams and for the words that he speaks. His brothers are not impressed. Three times we read the word hate. It's like Moses is kind of giving us the, 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 getting out a highlighter and telling us the hearts of the brothers. They hate him, they hate him, they hate him. And in verse 11, we get to the heart of the matter. Why do they hate him so much? Because they're jealous. 
their dreams, again, and desires for their own lives are threatened by the dreams given to Joseph by God. And in that sense, listen, it's not Joseph that they are despising and hating, but God himself. They wanted the inheritance. They wanted to be the most loved. They wanted the respect and the honor and the wealth and the power. They sound a lot like us. And here in this moment, they are not concerned with what God wants or what God is doing. And they should have seen, they should have seen that it was God himself who was speaking to Joseph, that God was revealing a plan that they too were included in and intended to embrace and accept and rejoice in. God is the God of dreams in the ancient world. All through Genesis, God has been speaking through dreams. So here they are rejecting what God is communicating. They think only of themselves. Our lives are so often dominated by our own dreams our own desires, our own plans. Sin and Satan and our society train us to believe that life is really about you and me fulfilling our dreams. It's at the root of all our conflicts, by the way. Every conflict you have in every relationship you have, it's at, at the end of the day, it's a competition of dreams and desires, plans and purposes. This is exactly what James says in the New Testament in chapter 4. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fight among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. How fitting for this passage. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And here's the kicker. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These men as we often do in our sins, stand as enemies of God. So here's the reality check. Life is not about you fulfilling your dreams. And if you look at Joseph, we can learn a great lesson here. Your story, your life, is a part of a much larger story that's actually all about God at the center. And if you really want to navigate the challenges of life well, you need to stop making life about fulfilling your dreams and start figuring out God's dream or God's plan for the world and the people that he created. Now, let me be clear. Of course, you can have dreams and ambitions and goals, things that you want to achieve in this life. My point is this, that those things cannot be primary in your life. They cannot give you the kind of fulfillment and joy, happiness and satisfaction that you are created to know and experience. They can only be secondary, and any joy and satisfaction you derive from them is pointing you ultimately to a greater joy that can only be found in God himself. Let me say it like this. Life is found not in determining your self-created purpose, but in discovering your God-created purpose. You say, where do I look? Well, right here in this book, God was not silent about who created the world and why he created the world. If you begin at the, be begin at the beginning of Genesis, you'll find out very quickly that there is a God who is over all. We've seen that in the book of Genesis. 
God created humanity with a very specific purpose, and at the heart of that purpose is to know God in a personal, intimate relationship. It's to live in fellowship and communion with him. It is to worship him alone. Part of what we can learn from this is that we need to be faithful to the purpose for which God has created us. We need to listen to the voice of our Father and we need to do exactly what he tells us. We need to believe what he says about who we are and what he has called us to be and do in this world. And if you do that, can I just, can I just tell you, we use Joseph as an example here. If you are faithful to do what God wants you to do and to be who God wants you to be, it's not always going to go well for you. you listen, you will be hated in the same way that Joseph is hated. And Jesus Christ himself says, the world hated me. They're gonna hate you too if you're my disciple. So, so there's the first reality check for us. The second reality check is this, that life does not always go the way you dreamed. We've all got these masterful plans on how we think our lives are going to unfold and what we're going to do and how great it's going to be. But you live a little while and you find out that things don't always go as planned. Verse 12, we pick up the story. It says, now his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that, or what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. 
And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Joseph's brothers are, are some ways away. Probably three to seven days journey. This is far, far away away from home. And so Joseph is sent out from his father, again as the obedient son, to check in. He goes looking for them and he, he comes uh, upon a man who helps him find them in Dothan. But in verse 18, they see him from afar and they conspire against him. They come up with this, this, this unbelievable plan that's going to change the trajectory of all of their lives. Their plan is very simple. Let's kill him. Now, I grew up with three brothers in my house, all relatively close in age. And as you can imagine, there was much tension at times in the home. Things did not always go the way my mom dreamed. Uh, those three were really difficult, real problem. <laughs> but even though we may have threatened death on multiple occasions, we didn't actually mean it. At least I didn't. <laughs> These guys, they mean it. And there's a lot going on here in this passage. There's too much that we can really pull apart. But we're supposed to here have in the back of our minds that this idea of the family tension and brothers killing another brother. Does that sound like another story to you? It should sound familiar, at least in, in two stories that we've already looked at in the book of Genesis. And one has, has to do with the father Jacob, doesn't it? Jacob, the, the deceiver who deceived his brother Esau out of the birthright, out of the blessing, and, and Esau is so furious that he, he wants to kill Jacob. That's why Jacob had to, to you know, tuck tail and run and go find a wife. His brother Esau was going to kill him, but it goes back further than that. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. When the first murder enters human history, where two brothers, Cain and Abel, bring sacrifices to God, and only one sacrifice is acceptable or pleasing to the Lord, there's only one child who's chosen that God is going to use, that God is, 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 is appreciating, is valuing the sacrifice. The other one brings the mere leftovers to God and thinks that he can get by with offering God leftovers. And back in chapter 4, we're supposed to see this, this split that takes place between all of humanity, right? There is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that are at war against each other because one day the promise of Genesis 3.15 is going to come true. There's going to, become, or to come a, a seed, a child, a person who is going to crush the head of the serpent. But until that day, a battle is going to ensue. And right here, we're being dropped back into that battle because we're supposed to see that Joseph is the chosen son. 
He's the, the promised seed, so to speak. And his brothers right now are, are seeds of the serpent. They are doing everything they can to try to stop God's plan. But we know that they cannot. Their plan is in motion. Premeditated, first-degree murder, but we know that God's plan is already in motion. So they take him and they throw him into this pit, and it sounds kind of ominous, right? When you think of a pit, you know, you should be thinking of this idea of death. Now, this pit, we're told, has no water in it. That's a good thing for Joseph because it means he's not going to drown. But they've come up with a secondary plan. Reuben himself has, the older brother, has, has thought it wise not to kill him and instead figure out a way to rescue him. But while Reuben is off and gone, the brothers decide they're gonna sell him instead into slavery, make a bit of profit off of their younger brother. They sit down at this meal while their little brother sits in the pit of death. And in this chapter, we heard Joseph speak in the first 11 verses, but I want you to just to see something here, is that in the rest of this chapter, you never hear the voice of Joseph. He's silent. His brothers are doing all the talking, all the planning, all the scheming, all the deceiving. Later on, we know this, in chapter 42, Joseph is going to come face to face with his brothers when he's ruling in Egypt, and he's not going to know it's them. And there we get a little more insight into what's taking place. It says this, they, they, they don't know they're standing in front of Joseph, they think they're standing in front of an Egyptian, and so they start speaking in Hebrew, in their own, their own language, and here's what they say to one another, not knowing that Joseph can hear them. Then they said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So we don't hear it in this passage. And I think that's for good reason, but I want you just to, to hear what's going on as they sit and eat a meal and plan the death of their brother, the certain death that would come about by slavery. Their little brother is sitting in a pit pleading, guys, don't do this, please. Pull me out of here. What do, you, what do I have to do to make it right? How can I fix this situation? Guys, you can't be serious. Life has taken a drastic and unexpected turn for Joseph. This, I promise you, this is not going the way he dreamed. And it's all completely outside of his control. I want you to think, it's not like you can just work harder, believe more in yourself, bootstrap it. Through. He can do nothing in this situation. Not one thing. He is at the mercy of his brother's and this band of gypsies on their way to Egypt. He can do nothing, listen, but God can. And it just so happened that that caravan of, of Midianites trading um, items that they're bringing to Egypt, they're Ishmaelites, they're traveling by. And so rather again than kill him, they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. I want you to just to process that. What is a life worth? And 
And here we see that Joseph, Joseph moves from being the praised son to a pathetic slave. From a position of honor to a place of humiliation. From the one who is loved and accepted, now he finds himself despised and rejected. He is stripped of his royal robe, and he now wears the shackles of a criminal. This is not what Joseph had dreamed for his life. His brothers, this is not what they, they dreamed for their lives. Their lives would never be the same. How would Reuben ever live this down? And look at, look at Jacob here, the inconsolable grief. How ironic, deceived, right, with, with, with a, a coat and animal blood. The deceiver who deceived his brother out of a blessing using goat's fur is now deceived by his sons using the blood of an animal, the blood of a goat. And Jacob here is, he's just out of sorts. His beloved son is dead. And here's our reality check. Life does not always go the way you dream. Why? It's very simple. Theologically speaking, it's, it's very simple. Not always easy, but it's simple. Here's the simple theological answer for why life doesn't go the way we dream. Because we live in a fallen, sinful world. Right at the very beginning of creation. This is not the way it was supposed to be, right? Humanity, Adam and Eve, lived in Eden under the blessing of God. And you know what they did? They, they cast all of that off, and instead they began to live under the curse, all because of sin. And that means that because of their actions, their rebellion, that life would be hard. God promised that, that life under the curse is hard. Relationships are going to be hard. This world is going to be broken. Work is going to be hard. Everything is going to be hard. Death has entered into the picture. Where life once reigned, now death rules because of sin. We know this, right? Life is hard. A medical diagnosis that's changed your life and will one day soon take your life. And while you wait, you cannot do and enjoy the things that you used to do and enjoy. Your days are filled with pain and exhaustion and difficulty. The news of a child in the womb turns into the fear of a child not developing properly or, or issues with the pregnancy that are affecting both child and mother Children outside the womb who are rebelling against your authority, they're struggling with their, their own sin and insecurity and identity, and they're, they're making a mess of their life, and there's nothing you can do about it. Marriages that were once solid as a rock, now on the rocks. Some broken irreparably, some disintegrated, gone. Families in turmoil and under incredible strain and tension. See, these all sound so specific, Ian. Yeah. Because they're happening right here. In this room, right now, from conversations I had this week, stories I know about in this church, and, and listen, and so many more stories of suffering and heartache and pain and tragedy and difficulty, challenges, some of you just not even sharing, but you're living in this unbearable amount of agony.
Life is not going the way you dreamed. And I would love to be able to stand up here, it would be great, and tell you, tomorrow, everything's gonna be better. I would, love to, I, would love, I would love nothing more than to be able to say that with full confidence, to reassure your heart that tomorrow's a better day. But you know what? That's not necessarily true. Tomorrow may be worse than today. And the day after that may be worse than that day. And every day after until you die. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it'll get better. I hope so. I pray so, but maybe not. I don't know, I was thinking about this last night. I was, I was journaling last night, I was going over the sermon, I was kind of just thinking about this year, and I, I wrote these words, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I wrote these words like, God, what unexpected things do you have for me this year? And, and I'm not thinking about the good, I'm thinking about the hard. Because they're coming. They're, they're inevitable. We live in a fallen, broken world, and it's not just the sin outside of us, it's the sin within us, isn't it? Some of us are struggling not because of things done to us by others, but because of the things we've done to others, because of our sin against God. But while I can't promise you that your life or your circumstances will be better tomorrow, I can promise you this, listen, that his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And I can promise you, listen, I can promise you that what, listen, all the powers of evil mean for, for wickedness, for bad, for evil in your life, God, if you're in Christ today, God means for good. This is awesome news. At the end of Joseph's life, when he is in a position of power, the very last chapter of the book of Genesis, he's going to stand before his brothers, and in their guilt and shame, knowing what they've done to their brother, Joseph is going to look at them in the eyes. And he's going to say to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Don't be confused. Not that God turned it for good. Not that God redeemed it for good. He meant it for good. He intended it for good from the very beginning. If you are God's child today, if you're in Christ today, here's the hope you have. God is channeling all of the powers of his providence towards your good and his glory. Always. Always. You can have hope that God is with you. And that even though your dreams might not come true and life doesn't go the way you dreamed, you can have confidence that God holds on to you. He's got you. He's with you. So you can have faith. And you can walk in faithfulness. As hard as this life may get, our hope is in the reality of another life. Eternal life with God. So let me give you one final reality check to help you navigate the challenges of life. And this is going to lead us into our time of communion together. And, uh, and so I, I just, I hope this, I hope you take it as that. Soak this in and let your heart be ushered to the cross. Here's the final reality check. Life will not be found apart from the Lord of the dreams. The narrator, Moses, ends this tragic story on a hopeful note in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, 
one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. It doesn't sound like much, but if you know the end of the story, you know that this is a statement of hope. Joseph is in Egypt. Though he has become a slave, he is a slave of one of Pharaoh's officials. Joseph is close to Pharaoh's palace. And there's a touch of irony in verse 18 that I skipped over that I just want to revisit for a moment. And it's that that statement that they make when they see Joseph off in the distance and they're conspiring against him. Do you remember the words they use when they see see him? In, In the English version, it says, oh, look, here comes the dreamer. But in the original Hebrew, it it reads more like this. Oh, here comes the Lord of the dreams. Oh, here comes the ruler of the dreams. Oh, look, there's, in in other words, it's recalling their original statements when he told them the dreams. Do you remember that? Will you rule over us? It's interesting, it wasn't the coat or the favoritism that finally got them, it was the dreams. Will you reign over us? And in rejecting Joseph, what we again need to be reminded of is that they are rejecting God himself. And this, this right here is the crux of the issue for all of humanity. It's the very first sin in the garden. God, we don't want you to rule over us. We want to rule our lives. We want to be in charge. We want to be the authority. We want to be the king. We don't need you as our king, God. And that is precisely what ushered in the curse of death into human existence. It was the rebellion against God as king, the rejection of God as king. But this story here, the story of Joseph, It's pointing to the only way out of the curse of sin and death, and it involves bowing to the Lord of the dreams. Their very salvation, physically speaking, is going to be dependent upon how they respond to Joseph in the future by bowing down to him. And yes, his brothers... Again, spoiler alert, but you should know this story. You should know it. They, they did a movie about it. Disney did. There was a musical on Broadway. So if you don't know it, that's on you. <laughs> Joseph's dreams will come true. God's plan for him and ultimately for Israel and the nations is beginning to be fulfilled. You see, at the end of Genesis, we're we're to understand that Joseph going to Egypt and rising to a place of prominence is the means by which God is going to save not only Joseph's brothers from the famine of the land, but all the nations of the world. And even though his sufferings will increase by being falsely accused and imprisoned, his suffering will eventually lead to his exaltation to the highest position in Pharaoh's palace. But right here, right now, his brothers stand in opposition to the Lord of the dream. The one who gave it and the one to whom it points. You see, we need to understand the story of Joseph pointing beyond Joseph 
to a greater Joseph, pointing us to Jesus Christ. Sammy Motti wrote a book about Joseph's life last year. I, I, just, I read it last week, and I want to put this quote up. He ends his book by saying this, the Joseph story is the story of the whole Bible. It is the story of glory through suffering, exaltation through humiliation. It is the story of the cross and the crown. Just listen as I, I draw some parallels for you, and, and I want you to see how Joseph points you to Jesus. You see, through his suffering and eventual ascension to rulership, Joseph would save God's people, Israel. Jesus, through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection and ascension, would be the one who would save God's people. Joseph's brothers, they conspire to kill him, so too, Jesus' brothers, according to the gospel of, of Matthew, the chief priests and the elders, they conspire to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Joseph's brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus' brother, Judas, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph's brothers handed him over to the Gentiles so too Jesus' brothers handed him over to Pilate, the Gentile governor. In this chapter, we, we saw Joseph suffering in silence. So too Jesus suffered in silence. And the Word of God tells us that just, just as God used the evil deeds of these brothers to save his people for their good, so too God used the evil deeds of Jesus' brothers to save his people from their sins. There is a greater Joseph who would go down to the pit of death and he would be drawn out of the pit of death, overcoming sin and death. And he would be exalted to the right hand of the Father where he now sits ruling and reigning on high. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the true and greater Lord of the dreams. Joseph could never save God's people finally and fully from their sin. Joseph could only provide a temporary kind of salvation, but Jesus, the one to whom Joseph was pointing, could provide true salvation, lasting salvation, eternal salvation. Reality check. Life will not be found apart from the Lord of the dreams. You can look all you want in the things of this world. You can have all of the, the, the false gods you want. Not one of them has the power to save you. There's only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And if you bow to Jesus, the ultimate Lord of the dreams, you too can be saved. Saved from your sin and given true and everlasting life in him. If you don't know Jesus today, if you're here and you're hearing the gospel for the first time and you're looking at your life and you're seeing that the greatest problem you have is not your circumstances, it's your sin. There is hope for you today. 
God invites you to come and embrace him as Lord, the only one who could overcome your sin and give you true and everlasting life.